And this is why AI could be very dangerous because when we try to define wisdom or pursue wisdom outside of God, it can be very violent and dangerous. What does Christianity say about what it means to be human? Why do we start with Genesis 3 and our sin rather than starting with God's good purposes for the world and what he made us for? Welcome to the Design Movement Podcast, where we have a passion to accelerate global mission together. I am your host, Jason Watson, and today we are tackling the defining question of the 21st century, what does it mean to be human? Now, over the past hundred years, the world has seen a massive shift in both technological advancements and philosophical ideologies that have challenged our understanding of human identity, sexuality, and distinctiveness. In today's podcast, we're going to be exploring how context shifts have impacted our understanding of humanness including the rise of artificial intelligence, biotechnology, and human sexuality. To help us unpack this topic, we will be joined by Dr. Matthew Nieman, the director of the Lausanne Movement State of the Great Commission report, who will share some of the findings from the report. And then we'll hear from Dr. Carmen Imes, an esteemed associate professor of Old Testament theology at Biola University, on the biblical response to these realities. I hope you're ready for a really enlightening interview because we're going to jump straight into my interview with Dr. Matthew Nieman. Dr. Matthew Nieman, welcome back to the podcast. Thank you, Jason. Good to be here. So today we are exploring what you referred to as one of the most pressing questions that the global church and the local church need to be asking and answering. And that is connected to the shifts in our understanding of what it means to be human. And the question that we all ask, like, what does it mean to be human? And so I want to kick us off by asking you to fill us in. Why do you believe us answering the question and begin exploring the question of what it means to be human is an important question for us to be answering? Why do you believe that? Jason, I think I'm going to actually make a bold claim here. Not only do I believe this is one of the most pressing questions facing the church, I personally believe it is one of the most pressing questions facing our world. And I believe this is probably the question of the age for our church, fundamentally. So when I discuss this with leaders from around the world, there's a general sense of the gravity of this question, right? From AI and tech challenging human capabilities to philosophical movements questioning gender and identity to social movements enforcing and changing sexuality ideas, right? Questions about humanness is being interrogated from so many angles and so many directions. So there's a lot of searching and deconstructing going on in our world. And the church really must have an answer with a convincing Christian anthropology. This is such an important question and arguably the question of our age. And you know, man, I would actually agree with you. I think it is the question that we need to be asking and answering and working through in terms of scripture and what does the Lord say about what it means for us to be human. As I open up your report, I was not surprised to see what major themes that you were exploring was the shifts in human sexuality and identity and that. But what did surprise me was how you focused that question in on artificial intelligence and biotechnology. And we'll unpack that a little bit. But let's start off with artificial intelligence. Could you share some of the data connected to shifts surrounding artificial intelligence, AI? For many of us, it came onto our radar through ChatGTP. But how do the figures compare in terms of the previous years, like how AI has grown to where we are today? I think there's a general sense now in our world that AI is here. I think in just the last couple of years, it's become on a lot of people's radars, like you said, Jason. But there, there's two parts to this. AI is here, but AI is still young and growing, but it has been growing for a long time already. And really this advancement of AI has been exponential and continue to be exponential as we grow. Yep. Through in the last 20 years, different systems have been worked on with attempting to develop performance abilities. Performance abilities such as handwriting recognition, reading comprehension, speech recognition, language understanding, image recognition, and the like. And what's interesting, perhaps, we had a little bit of a watershed moment. In recent years, in the last five years, AI has developed to a point in each one of these categories where it now surpasses human performance. Even recently, we're seeing new capabilities. I work in a particular area of design and creativity. And we have these new capabilities, image generation and voice reproduction and video creation. So in general, and we can go forever on this, but in general, AI is at an amazing level of development, but it's really just getting started and it's going to be pushing much farther. It's amazing to consider how technology can mimic 
the human ability and even surpass it in terms of intelligence and capability. And I think that's partly why we are talking about this, about AI connected to what it means to be human. Could you share some insights about the global perception of AI? How are people seeing it? How are they perceiving it? Are there any notable themes? Yeah, I mean, with any technology, there's some thoughtful questioning that happens within humanity. This is no difference. There's an interesting survey that the World Bank completed in 2022, which asked individuals from a large number of countries all around the globe, how did they perceive AI? Specifically, one question asked, people, whether they felt AI products and services had more benefits than drawbacks. You know, Jason, I found these results kind of interesting. Overall, individuals from Asia and Latin America were much more optimistic about AI, with China and Saudi Arabia and India all measuring over 70% of individuals believing it has more benefits than drawbacks. But what's interesting is that this isn't really the case for Western countries. On the whole, people in Europe and North America believe there are more drawbacks than benefits to be had with AI. So there's this kind of interesting regional split that's happening there as well. One thing the world did agree on though, 60% of all global participants believe that AI would profoundly change their daily lives in the next three to five years. There's a sense that it's here, it's coming and it's growing and we have to pay attention to this. Now we can't speak about AI and technology and the question of what it means to be human without speaking about biotechnology. Could you frame for us what is biotechnology and what does the report have to say about biotechnology and trends and stats associated with it? Yeah, it's interesting. I, I've had a lot of questions, even myself, saying, you know, is biotech an appropriate category for a state of the Great Commission? But I think under this sense, this, as you can imagine, what does it mean to be human? Biotechnology is really challenging what it means to be human. So it's a key part of the Great Commission considerations. Now, there's a lot of energy behind biotech innovation right now. A lot of this is being driven by the cost of genome sequencing plummeting, making technology very affordable and available. So within the biotech industry, just kind of get a sense of what this is, there are companies leveraging these technologies along with AI and big data to develop gene editing or gene sequencing or precision medicine, biomanufacturing, synthetic biology, and so on. But you can imagine without too much imagination how this can begin to start challenging questions of what it means to be human. I'd be super curious to hear what does the report say about the public perception of biotechnology, gene editing, all of that kind of thing. It raises up so many questions for me as a Christian, but public perception, was there a difference between like the different religious considerations or cultural groups? What stands out from your report? It was interesting. Unlike AI, there are fewer individuals who are optimistic about gene editing as they were about AI. So globally, only about 30% believe scientific and research on gene editing is appropriate. That's very interesting because that was not the case for AI, which had a lot more optimism. The majority of individuals in nearly all countries surveyed agreed that this is a misuse of technology. Now, India is about the only notable exception that 56% of the people believe that it's appropriate and we should continue on. Now, I mean, at that global level, we can say, all right, we have some hesitancy, but if you dig down a little bit further, there seems to be a big nuance here. These numbers change when you start looking at specific scenarios. So in this global survey, 70% of participants agreed that it was okay to use gene editing to treat a disease of a baby that they would have at birth. Let's change the genes to heal the baby. Now that flipped to only 14% of people feel it's appropriate to do the same kind of technology to make the baby more intelligent. So although there's a 30% kind of acceptance, this is really situationally based on the acceptance level. Now, as you mentioned, there's a big difference in religious understanding of this too. Probably more difference than any other part we've seen and technology. So when we look at the data through this religious filter, it's interesting that Christians are far more hesitant about this technology than religiously unaffiliated. Right? Something worth noting and something we have to consider. Definitely, and I'll be curious to hear what you have to say for us from an evangelical perspective. But we've looked at two major categories. We've spoken about AI, we've spoken about biotechnology, but we can't speak about the question of what it means to be human in the 21st century without speaking about human sexuality. So what does the data say in terms of trends regarding human sexuality? What are the societal attitudes towards it? What stands out to you from the report? Now, Jason, I know this is a sensitive issue. So I'm gonna be speaking generally in general terms about the topic. Now, generally, there, we can say there's a growing acceptance of LGBTQ in every region from 2002 to now. There's also a growing generational gap with individuals 
between 18 and 29 being far more accepting around the globe than people 50 plus. And in some countries, there are significant gaps between the generations. We all can observe that the global West has far greater social acceptance of this than, say, Africa, Middle East, or Asia, generally speaking again. We all know this is a challenging issue for the churches and for countries alike. So it, it's an important thing to consider. As you reflect on all this data, what types of questions should the church be asking regarding shifts in understanding humanness? As we've seen here, there are so many questions here. Just like any one of these topics, there's so many questions. But I don't think we can forget the key question. We could get easily bogged down into particular questions about social acceptance of sexuality or gender identity or the ethical ramifications of biotech. And I think that's a, that's a big temptation. Let me spend all my energy on that kind of question down at that level. But I want to say that we cannot forget that this is all leading to the key question here. What does it mean to be human? The church has to be able to provide a compelling answer to this question. Yes, we have to be able to understand and talk about ethics and biotech. We have to be able to talk about sexuality, biblical understandings of gender. That has to be done. But if we do not attend to this larger question of what it means to be human, we are missing the main question. But if we do so, we can begin to answer those associated questions down below with much easier. We can't just ask questions. We also need to wonder about what are the challenges and the opportunities that we face as an evangelical church. And so as you've been reflecting on this data, as you've been reflecting on these questions, what challenges and opportunities do you believe the evangelical church have to offer when it comes to the question of what does it mean to be human? Anybody in, in leadership that looks up or anybody even observing media knows that the challenges here are immense. These particular challenges have divided countries, have divided churches, have split denominations. There's no question that the challenge is deep and the stakes are very high here. As I said, this is the question of our age. And if we fail to the, answer this question in a compelling way, as you can imagine, there are a lot of ramifications and a lot of those we're already seeing. On the other hand, I think there's a great opportunity. It's gonna take some work, we're not there yet, but if we can answer what does it mean to be human in a compelling way, as you can imagine, if the challenges are so deep, the opportunities are just as deep. I hope we don't get disheartened with all the high stakes and challenges out there that we're seeing, but we can elevate above that and we can begin to say, hey, look, there is such an opportunity here. If the church can speak to the world on this particular issue, what does it mean to be human? There could be a glorious moment here for the church. Matt, thank you so much for sharing this. Thank you for providing something to think about. Any final thoughts as we bring this part of the episode to a close? Any thoughts you'd like to share with our audience? Yeah, I think I'm just going to frame my final thought here in the form of a challenge question. For any individual church listening or even organization listening, let me ask you this. Do you, as an individual or as an organization, have a compelling and biblical answer to what does it mean to be human? Honestly, do you? And if not, I would encourage you, there's a lot of work to be done here and the importance is so high. Spend some time as an individual or a church or an organization identifying and finding and providing a compelling answer to this question. That is such a great way to wrap up this part of the episode. I want to encourage everyone listening to stop even right here and just to take a moment to ask the question, what does it mean to be human? Can you articulate that? And perhaps even challenge you with what Matt is saying to even begin to ask the people around you, what do they think it means to be human? And what does the Bible have to say about that? And so with that framing thought, Matt, thank you so much for what you're bringing to this podcast. Until next time. All right. Thank you, Jason. Next up, we have Dr. Carmen Imes, Old Testament professor at Biola University. Dr. Imes previously served as a missionary in the Philippines with SIM International, reaching out to ethnic minorities and is best known for her books, Bearing God's Name, Why Sinai Still Matters, and Being God's Image. Why creation still matters. In our interview, we explore the state of artificial intelligence, biotechnology, and human sexuality, and the impact on the quintessential question, what does it mean to be human? As we dive into these complex issues, we'll also discuss the church's role in navigating our rapidly evolving world. So stay tuned for an enlightening conversation with Dr. Carmen Imes. Well, Dr. Imes, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Thank you, Jason, for having me. It's really great to have you. Today, we are going to be digging into the State of the Great Commission Report's findings on the global shifts impacting our understanding of human identity. 
And the report refers to shifts in AI and biotechnology and, and sexual identity and gender. And all of this forces us as believers to reevaluate and ask the question, what does it really mean to be human? And fortunately for us, you have spent many hours thinking about this question as you've crafted and written your latest book, Being in God's Image. So before we dive into the data, I would love for our audience to just get to know you a little bit. And I'd be curious to hear a bit about your own personal journey that led you to exploring the question of human identity and that led you to writing being in God's image. And if you'd like, you could also unpack a few of the overarching themes within the book. Sure. So I'm associate professor of Old Testament at Biola University. So teaching Old Testament is what I do for a living. And it's something that I came to on a long and winding road. My husband and I were missionaries for many years with SIM and really felt a sense of calling to teach the scriptures and help people engage the scriptures and to know God and to know their place in his story. And that journey led us back. We were in the Philippines for a while. We came back to the U.S. and I began working on a master's degree and then a Ph.D. And my focus for the Ph.D. was on the question of what does it mean to be the people who bear God's name? So I focused in on the command of the Decalogue or Ten Commandments that says you shall not take the Lord's name in vain. And I came to understand that in a very missional way. I think that what God was saying to his people is, I have placed my name on you to claim you as my own. Therefore, you are my representatives among the nations. So don't go out and misrepresent me. That would be what it means to take God's name in vain. And so it was a missional reading. I published a book with InterVarsity Press back in 2019 called Bearing God's Name, Why Sinai Still Matters, trying to help the church re-embrace this vision of being the people who bear God's name and to understand their identity and vocation in light of what God did with Israel at Sinai. And right after the book came out, people started saying, oh, the way you're talking about bearing God's name reminds me of the image of God and how we bear God's image. And that too is a representative role. Do you see those as the same? And I realized that I that there was some space there and a need to clarify what is the difference? What is the difference between being human and being part of the people of God? Both are representative roles. I do think that to be God's image is to represent his presence in the world. But to bear God's name is something more specific and more limited to the covenant people. And so this second book is really like a prequel. Being God's image explores what does it mean to be human more broadly. Every human being is the image of God. Every human being has the inherent dignity and worth that comes with being identified as God's image. And it is our human task, our human vocation that flows out of that identity. And our task is to benevolently steward the creative world, to take what God has made and to take care of it, to make sure that humans and animals have access to the resources they need, to make sure that we're engaging the world in sustainable ways, to maintain the order that God created, all of those things. So that was part of my motivation for writing the book was just to this this question that arose about the similarities and differences between being God's image and bearing God's name. The other thing that motivated me is that as a missionary, we often were wrestling with how do we share the gospel? And I don't know about you, but the gospel message that I grew up with sounded something like this. You're a sinner. Christ died for your sins. And if you ask Jesus into your heart, he'll forgive you and you'll go to heaven when you die. And what I realized over the these years of deeper study of scripture is that's not a very biblical way of telling the story. It actually chops off the beginning and the end of the biblical story because it leaves out Genesis 1 and 2 where God creates a good world and puts humans as his appointed representatives on earth and gives us a job to do, which it seems to me is the first thing we ought to tell anyone who wants to know about Christianity. What does Christianity say about what it means to be human? Why do we start with Genesis 3 and our sin rather than starting with God's good purposes for the world and what he made us for? Sin is certainly a reality and sin brings us off track, but it is not the beginning of the story. The beginning of the story is God's good creation, our human identity as his image, and this exciting vocation to partner with God and with one another 
to bring about flourishing in the world. And we also, so we chop that part of the story off so often, and then we chop off the end. Yes, heaven is a place that we go temporarily while we wait for the new creation. But the scriptures talk about God's renewal of all things, that when Christ returns, all things will be renewed and we will reign with him on earth. In our bodies, Jesus' resurrection body should settle the question of what's going to happen with our bodies. Sometimes we talk about salvation as though it's purely spiritual and not physical, that these bodies are just incidental to who we are. They're the shell or the husk around the real us. And when we die, we'll cast that away and just float around freely. And that's not a biblical vision of what it means to be human or what our destiny looks like. And so I wanted to help people recover this very tangible and embodied existence that God, when God gave us bodies, he called it very good. And he gives us physical work to do on the earth. And Jesus comes in human flesh as a fully embodied human. Jesus rises from the dead in his human body. And that human body has continuity with with the body he had when he died because there are scars from his crucifixion. And his physical body is what ascends into heaven and what will return when he comes to reign over all things. So I wanted to help Christians recover this greater story that we're part of that includes our physical embodiment. And that has all sorts of implications for the issues that this report is raising about massive changes in our thinking and in our world. We need to go back to the drawing board Mm -hmm. and reconsider the importance of human embodiment. You've already kicked us off with such great insights, and I really want to jump into the report. But before we do, I know that you've spent hours thinking about this as you've been preparing for your book and as you've been speaking about this on other podcasts. And, you know, I'm sure you've been speaking to your students about it as well at Biola. I'd be curious, have there been any lessons that you've learned along the way as you've been exploring being a human being, being created in the image of God, having that that shared common reality with every other human being in the world, that were there any lessons that came to you that were almost unexpected as you dug into Mm. this topic? One of the areas that most impacted me was learning about disability and thinking about disability with these lenses. So many times through the history of interpretation, People have attached the image of God to a certain human capacity, whether it's intellect or even a physical capacity. And as I reframed that and renuanced that in a way that I think is more rooted in the biblical text, I discovered that it has huge implications for how we think about disability. Because if if we attach the Imago Dei to something that humans can do, then as soon as a human can't do that thing— are we saying they're no longer the image of God? We end up with a sliding scale of humanity where some people are more the image of God than others. And I think that's very deeply dangerous. And so this framing of the Imago Dei in the way that Genesis talks about it, understanding the language it uses in its context, I've become convinced that the Imago Dei or the image of God is our human identity, not a capacity which means if somebody out there lacks a particular capacity, if you are not as strong as those around you, if you're dealing with chronic pain or impaired mobility or impaired vision or impaired hearing, none of that disqualifies you from this status as God's image. If you have a human body, broken though it may be, you are the image of God. And I think that what surprised me about kind of reframing that or getting that bit right is that it then has huge implications for how we think about what it means to be the body of Christ and what it means to gather together and collaborate together to do God's work. Because we are invited into a vocation of doing things, but we're not meant to do all those things alone. We are to collaborate with one another to get the job done. And so no one person has to have all the skills or abilities. We're designed to be interdependent with one another and with God. And one of the more shocking things that I learned while I was doing my research is that Christians were on the front end, the leading edge of lobbying against legislation in the United States to make buildings and programs more accessible for people with disabilities. Christians lobbied against that, 
we opposed the Americans with Disabilities Act because churches and Christian schools were afraid that it would be too expensive to make our buildings accessible. And as I reckoned with the scripture's teaching on humanity and humanness, I just felt like this is a travesty. We should be on the leading edge of building wheelchair ramps and installing elevators and making sure that our services are accessible to a wide variety of people with a wide variety of different challenges, that we're thinking about neurodiversity as we plan our worship services, that we're thinking about making space for everyone to participate and collaborate, not and not just letting people in the door, like, yeah, you can come here if you want, but like full inclusion in the leadership process of the church. And I came across some really wonderful testimonies of people who are working in their churches to reframe things. And they're saying, we don't just want people with mental and physical disabilities to join our church. We've invited them into leadership roles, and we believe that their voices are really necessary as we think about mission. And that, I think, is a beautiful thing that we need to replicate a million times over. Wow, that's so beautiful. I love that you already started digging into this idea of defining ourselves by our capabilities and our competencies. Mm. And mm-hmm. and you're so right. We so often use that as a gauge to say, well, I'm better than you or I am more human than you. Even in the mission of God, we can be challenged in the, in the thought of say, well, I am more godly than you because I can do more yeah. than you. Yes. If we define our humanness or our value, or attach our value to our productivity, then it puts us on this hamster wheel of, I have to do things because I'm justifying my existence. I'm proving my worth before God or before others. And it's actually such a deeply flawed vision of humanness. Our work matters, but it doesn't make us matter. And we have to get that right. Otherwise, you know, we've got an army of missionaries out there who are involved in God's work, many of whom are doing so with this underlying motivation. I doubt there are too many who are out there trying to earn their salvation by working. But do we try to earn God's favor or earn kind of justify like I'm okay because I did X? or I belong because I contributed X. I think that is deeply rooted in a lot of Christian environments. And it gets tangled up with really godly motivations. Like, I want to do this work to honor God, but I understand that my worth isn't attached to it. So those things get entangled in our minds. And how much freedom we would experience if we were able just to be in God's image and just say, my value mm-hmm. comes from being a son or a daughter in Christ. I yes. think that would free yes. us up so much. Uh, it as, would. As I think about the a scale of capacity or capability, when we define our humanness by that, and we bring in this whole idea of AI into the picture, if we look at the State of the Great Commission report, we see that by the year 2000, artificial intelligence was almost negligible, right? It couldn't do much. There was, it couldn't read much. It couldn't do anything. And then as the scale flips and it goes to 2020, we see that the development of AI has surpassed the capabilities of humans themselves. And I think that in itself, it also forces us to, it's almost like the flip side of, of what stood out to you as you were writing a book is saying, well, if we're defining our humanness by our capability, and now there are machines that are able to do more than we are able to do, what does that mean about, are they more human than us? How can we become more reflective in the idea of being in God's image rather than a Mm -hmm. capacity? How does AI challenge us in that way? Yeah. Jason, I did not start out to write a book to counter artificial intelligence or to even think about it. This is something that that I've come to accidentally, but by reframing or re-nuancing this idea of the image of God and bringing it away from capacity to identity, I think I found an unexpected gift for us in this world that is suddenly racing headlong towards the incorporation of artificial intelligence. As you've said, if we attach our human worth or our identity to what we are able to produce, then as soon as a computer can outproduce us, then it 
becomes more human than we are. But if we understand that to be God's image is to be physically embodied in human body and a physical representative of his presence, regardless of what we do, we are physically the image of God. That frees me up to not be worried about AI. Are there things about AI that could be problematic? Could it form us or form our society in ways that are dangerous? Yes. But it also has the capacity to do great good and to be very useful, even for the cause of mission. So it's somewhat, AI, I think, is somewhat neutral, and we don't need to worry about being replaced because nothing can replace humans. This conclusion that I'm making is based on the Hebrew word for image in Genesis 1, which is the word tselem. And a tselem is something very concrete. If you've ever seen an idol in a temple or near a temple to another god, the idol is physical and concrete. It's a concrete statue. That's what the word tselem refers to. So it's not some intangible capacity. It's actually the physicality of the statue that makes it a tselem. And when God creates humans and says, you are my tselem, He's saying we physically represent God and his presence the way an idol or statue represents another deity. And that's a really fascinating thing to chew on. And a computer can never do that because a computer is not embodied the way that we are. So how do biblical authors continue to develop this idea of what it means to be human? What does it mean to be created in the image of God? And how do they continue that tradition of Salem throughout the scriptures? Yeah. So the word Salem in conjunction with humanity being God's image only occurs three times in the Old Testament. And it's in chapter one, chapter five, and chapter nine. So just in the early chapters of Genesis, we get this concept. And then it kind of drops out of view for the rest of the Old Testament humanness doesn't drop out of you, but the specific label Imago Dei drops out. And I actually think that's because the attention after chapter Genesis chapter 11 turns toward the covenant people who bear God's name. Because as you're aware, in the first 11 chapters of Genesis, things spiral down out of control and humans reject God's rule. They reject their God-given identity and vocation and try to seize a different identity. They fail to live in alignment with God's identity, and they begin to seek wisdom outside of God. And that sets the world on this spiraling trajectory into violence. And this is why AI could be very dangerous, because when we try to define wisdom or pursue wisdom outside of God, it can be very violent and dangerous. So if you have computers accessing data and recombining it in ways to accomplish more, if the data we put in is violent or self-serving in some way, then the product is also going to be self-serving in ways that are dangerous. So, but back to your question, the Bible has a lot more to say about what it means to be human. And I think that especially comes out in a more prominent way in the wisdom books of the Old Testament. So Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, Job, Song of Songs, each of these wrestles with what does it mean to live wisely in God's world, which is, of course, that question that Adam and Eve are faced with in Genesis chapter 3 and for which they choose wrongly. Proverbs exhorts us to manage our money and our time and our relationships in ways that, are, that will lead to flourishing. And the book of Ecclesiastes wrestles with the search for meaning and for meaningfulness, like that for me to accomplish something or contribute something. And the author of Ecclesiastes tries to get us off that hamster wheel and says, don't always work for something out there that's ahead of where you are. Enjoy the journey. Eat, drink, and be merry. Don't always be focused on where what you don't have yet or what you haven't accomplished yet. He gives us a more sober view of life that recognizes not that life is meaningless, but that the meaning of life is difficult to grasp and that that sense of satisfaction is fleeting. So that book kind of helps us reckon with that. It's a more chastened view of life, not a everything's onward and upward and we're, we're always on the trajectory to winning. He recognizes that life isn't like that. We don't win everything. 
And then the book of Job is wrestling with suffering, human suffering, and he yells at God and he calls God to give an account for his suffering. And I think, you know, computers don't suffer. Computers don't wrestle with their own meaning. They don't have self-consciousness. And computers aren't doing moral discernment the way Proverbs calls us to morally discern between things. A computer cannot decide between good and evil. We would have to tell it how to decide between good and evil. And so this capacity for moral discernment and for suffering and for self-consciousness and even for sexual intimacy, which we see in the Song of Songs, all of these are part of what it means to be human that a computer is never going to participate in or be able to speak to. So, yeah, we live in a world where things are shifting so quickly. What's possible is shifting so quickly. And as I work with college students, I can see there's this temptation. If the goal is to produce as much as possible and AI can help me produce that faster, then I'll want to use AI to get to that end faster without reflecting on what is this education? How is this education supposed to be forming me as a person? And who am I going to be on the other side? And if we disentangle our identity and our worth from our productivity, then AI loses its hold over us. We can use it as a tool but only as a tool to help us fulfill our God-given vocation, not as a tool for becoming someone who matters. Wow. I love how you um, used the wisdom literature and brought out different imagery that each of them speak into our own human identity. As you were speaking, I was reflecting on the State of the Great Commission Report's findings on as they explored biotechnology and gene editing and I mean, there's just been such an advancement in that field that people can edit and, you know, heal diseases and they've researched on on rats and been able to help get into their cells and remove cancer and they can do all of these things. One of the interesting things that stood out to me in the report had to do with reflecting on different religions' perspectives on gene editing. So the ability to edit a human genome to make someone smarter or better or more beautiful, change colors of eyes, all that kind of thing. And one of the things that really stood out to me was out of all the religious groups, Christians were almost always more reserved in their position on gene editing. In almost every country, they were more reserved, beside one or two countries. As we reflecting on the biblical idea of human identity, What do you believe is forming our resistance to saying there is something special about the way that God has created us that we almost need to be content in? What would you say about that? I suspect that if we were able to drill down into the data and ask more questions of those who responded to this survey, that we would find the hesitance is rooted in this idea that I am who I am because God made me this way. And to edit the genes feels like it's crossing the line into playing God. Now, I'm not saying that there would be no reason ever to ed- to do gene editing, but I'm guessing that the hesitancy comes from that, from that biblical teaching that God is creator and he makes us. One of the passages that has really challenged me lately, I'm working on writing a commentary on the book of Exodus and... Also, since I wrote about disability for my book, I was considering this passage in Exodus chapter 4 where God has commissioned Moses to go back to Pharaoh and lead the people out of Egypt. And Moses feels unqualified, and he runs through a whole bunch of different objections to God's commissioning. And finally, in chapter 4, verse 10, he says, Pardon your servant, Lord. I have never been eloquent, neither in the past nor since you've spoken to your servant. I am slow of speech and tongue. And our English translation makes that pretty smooth, but it's actually quite choppy in Hebrew. He's stumbling all over his words. It's very ineloquent. And that final phrase, I'm slow or heavy of speech and tongue, is an actual diagnosis of a medical condition. Moses is not just afraid of speaking in public or has a difficult time thinking of what to say. He actually has some kind of speech impediment, it appears, 
And he's like, why would you choose me for a speaking role when you've given me this, when I have this speak, speech impediment? And God's response to him is so fascinating because the Lord says to him, who gave human beings their mouths? Like, newsflash, I know about your mouth. <laughs> this, is not, this is not news to God. Who makes them deaf or mute? Who gives them sight or makes them blind? Is it not I, the Lord? Now go and I will help you speak and teach you what to say. In fact, he says there in Hebrew, now go, I will be with your mouth. Very specifically, like this sight of your disability that makes you feel unqualified, I will be there with your disability. And this is challenging to me because I had always assumed that disability was a result of the fall and a result of sin and that God was going to fix it all, that that it was God's plan to fix it all. But this implies, this passage implies that God actually makes people with disabilities. Maybe that God's goal is not for us to be fully self-sufficient and independent, but that he designed us to need one another. He says to Moses, What about your brother Aaron the Levite? I know he can speak well, and he's already on his way to meet you. Which implies that even before Moses has objected to God's call and said, send someone else, that God has already commissioned Aaron to be with him, beside him, and to be his mouth, to do the speaking on his behalf. And so God intends for us to collaborate and to be interdependent, not He doesn't expect us to each individually have everything it takes. So when I think about gene editing, that was my like kind of rabbit trail, but bringing it back to gene editing, I wonder how much the desire to do gene editing is fueled by a desire for self-sufficiency or to meet a certain standard of either performance or beauty. I'm all about like, let's pursue healthcare. But when we start to modify our bodies because we're trying to look like some ideal, I wonder if we're rejecting the gift God gave us in some way. And even to consider the question of who determines what is wrong in our bodies and who determines what is good in our bodies. Yes. Yes, there are diseases and there are illnesses. But when you begin to go into an area of saying, oh, no, we're going to remove this gene from a baby because we believe that this is deficient. Mm-hmm. Who defines mm-hmm. what is deficient? And for me, that yeah, that's yeah. I begin to become a bit trepidatious <laughs> around around that whole theme. And uh, you know, for me, I can it connects back to as you were saying the sovereignty of God. And what would you have to say in, into something like that? How do we move forward as Christians as we wrestle with this idea of God's sovereignty on one hand and God enabling us to do gene editing? You know, yeah, this is the tricky thing, and this is the area that requires some deep ethical reflection. Because God does exercise his sovereignty in making humans, but he also, in Genesis 2, passes the baton to humans in some ways. He asks the human to name the animals. He invites humans into collaboration and partnership with him in doing the work. We don't just sit back passively while God does everything. And I don't think anybody listening would say, we we can do nothing. We just need to let God do everything. So I want to be careful not to reject any human intervention. If you're taking Tylenol or some kind of pain reliever when you have a headache, you are benefiting from the medical world's attempt to overcome a physical problem. And those things are benefits. So I don't think any and all medical intervention is wrong. I think God gives humans the minds to develop the creativity and the intelligence to develop solutions to real problems. I think we just need to continue to check our motivations for why do I think this is a problem that I'm trying to solve? And, you know, you get it in in other ways. This doesn't relate to gene editing, but I'm thinking of both abortion and euthanasia as the human determination of which lives are worth living. And that, that I think is very dangerous territory. I think the scriptures are very clear that whoever is human is the image of God and to take their life is to murder. And so whether that's someone trying to help you decide to put an early end to your life or whether that's someone deciding for that an unborn child 
would be better off not being born. I think these are areas that Christians have often led the way in opposing what the world says is possible. And I think that's the right place for us to be in opposing that. Yeah, I mean, what you're touching on is the call of God on the church, both local and global, to be prophetic. I'd be curious to hear from you. What role could you envision the church in reimagining this whole concept of what it means to be human within the context of our current cultural moments and the redemptive story of God? I think sometimes Christians are out in front leading the conversation on what constitutes sin. And although that can be helpful, I think without the context of God creating us good and inviting us into that participation, the world is only going to hear us saying no, no, no to what they want. And they're not going to hear the yes of God to human dignity and human worth Mm -hmm. and human participation and flourishing. And so I think part of what's tricky about these conversations in our world today is that the world out there is defining human flourishing in ways that are actually contrary to how God defines it. My ability to do whatever I want with my body whenever I want to is not actually defined by Scripture as a good. God calls us to lay down our lives for the sake of others, to deny ourselves, to deny our desires, to to retrain those desires and shape them according to what he says is good. And I believe as a as a follower of Jesus that I will experience the greatest flourishing when I follow that path that God has laid out for me, not when I just let my desires uh, run wild. Mm. And so right now, that's a very countercultural message in our world where the pursuit of desire and the pursuit of self-fulfillment seems to be the crown on everything. So part of the report was focused on changing attitudes towards sexuality and gender. And this is an area where I think the church the church has a very countercultural message. And our very tricky task, I think, is to hold together at the same time what the Bible says about the image of God, which is that every human being is God's image and therefore is worthy of dignity and should be treated well. That is just as true when we're talking about mm-hmm. LGBTQ identifying individuals as it is when we're talking about, you know, ladies old ladies in church who've been faithful and who've kind of followed the Bible's teaching their whole lives. It's not just that Christians are the image of God. Every human being is the image of God. So no matter how someone identifies or presents, no matter how they what they've pursued in terms of medical body modifications, they are the image of God. And so we need to lead the way in treating all people of all orientations with deep respect. But we also need to lead the way in calling people to a kind of discipleship that says, it's not me and my desires that are at the center of everything, but it's surrender to what God says is good that's at the center. Let's dig into that just a little bit. In light of these shifts in perspectives of sexuality and gender, how can we effectively communicate that image of God? in a way that resonates with people who who have a vast perspective of what it means to be human in the perspective of sexuality and gender. I'm afraid I'm not an expert in how to communicate that well. That is something that I'm still wrestling with. I think we need to hold space for each other in our wrestling to not demand that someone adopts our way of talking about things or our way of thinking about things, but just to love them well as fellow humans and to give them space for the wrestling that they're doing. This is These are tricky times. And as the report indicates, there's a significant age gap in how different generations are processing these issues. And what, you know, just looking at the chart tells me that parents and children are divided on this issue. I know in My own family and many other families, there's a divide on this issue. And learning to walk this out well and to have the difficult conversations is really the task of our day. Uh, Jason, I have not figured out how to do this personally. It's much easier to do it on a podcast than it is to do it with my own family. 
and I'm watching this with my friends as well. Pretty much everyone my age has children who are wrestling either with their own sexual identity or with close friends' sexual identity and orientation. And it's happened so fast. It feels like such a seismic shift so quickly that I think many of us have felt kind of unprepared. And we don't feel comfortable having these conversations. But I think that the Bible gives us the perspective that we need to engage if we're willing if we're willing to take the risk. Wow. Dr. Arms, thank you so much for being vulnerable and sharing with us. We're going to have to begin bringing this podcast to a close because our time together is coming to an end. Before we do that, I would love to ask, do you have any last thoughts that you'd like to share with us before we close? Well, I'm inspired by all those men and women globally who are thinking missionally and who are wanting to reach their neighbors for Christ. And so I I commend you all for your work. And I want to encourage you to keep thinking biblically about this work, not just about the message that you're going to share, but reframing the whole way that we do our work. If every human being that we encounter is the image of God, then there's a possibility of inviting others in to collaborate with us to do good work in the world, even before they are believers, that there is something, there's a God-given dignity and a God-given vocation with every human being. And I I think in the past, missions has sometimes been kind of top-down or maybe even paternalistic, like, here, let me come and give you what you need and help you. And although we do have a life-giving message to offer, we're engaging with people that already have dignity and worth that's God-given. And so to treat everyone as the glorious image of God that they are and to call them into that, I think, is is our high calling. Dr. Arms, thank you so much for your time. Thank you for pouring into us as an audience, as the Lausanne Movement Network. We truly appreciate it. This has been an enriching conversation. Before we close off, where can our listeners find more about you, more about your books, more about your work? How can they get hold of you? My books are available on Amazon or wherever you buy your books. I'm a big fan of small bookstores. So wherever uh, you get your books, you can order them. I have a YouTube channel where I release videos every week called Torah Tuesday. I'm on Facebook and Twitter or X, if you want to call it that. (laughs) And I have a blog, carmenjoyimes.blogspot.com. And I'm really happy to hear from people and hope that the, the work that I'm doing will be helpful to your mission. Thank you so much for that. I'll be sure to put that into the podcast description, put all those links there for those who are interested in finding out more about you and connecting with you. Once more, I just want to thank you for your time. Thank you for adding value to us. And thank you for bringing a fresh perspective on the question of what it means to be human. We are, like you've said, you know, we have, we're so focused on being bearers of his name that we forget that we are also bearers of his image. And it begins there and it also leads to the gospel story ends with us all coming together in that community. And so thank you for offering that fresh perspective. Truly appreciate you. Absolutely. Thanks for having me. And that concludes our conversation with Dr. Carmen Imes and Dr. Matthew Nieman. We'd like to extend our deepest gratitude to Dr. Carmen Imes for shedding light on such a profound and topical issue. We hope today's episode has encouraged you to dive deeper into your own understanding of what it truly means to be human, bearing the image of God. As we navigate through life's complexities, may we be reminded of the importance of our God-given identities and may they inspire our interactions with one another. If you have enjoyed today's podcast, I'd like to invite you to take a moment to give our podcast a rating and review and share it with your friends on social media. Next week, we'll be back with Dr. Matthew Newman and Dr. Sam George on global shifts in community. Until next week, cheers.